Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Inherent Vice stars Joaquin Phoenix as an inept private detective who delves into the dark corners of 1970s L.A. to find an ex-girlfriend who's gone missing. The all-star cast of the Paul Thomas Anderson film also includes Josh Brolin, Reese Witherspoon, and Owen Wilson. The Oscar-nominated animated film Song of the Sea tells the story of a boy and his sister embarking on a journey across a fading world of ancient legend and magic. Both films are now playing on demand. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. This week on the show, Allison and I argue over whose bright idea it was to invite Pussy Riot to that state dinner anyway, as we take on season three of House of Cards. Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots, where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme, or in this case, a common medium. It's been a while since we focused on television in all of its various rapidly evolving forms, so we're going to offer a few TV recommendations in this episode instead of the usual mix or the movies. But before that, we have Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few new notable films on demand on cable. Matt, what are our picks? Got a good batch of movies this week, and I'm going to start with one called Spring... It is directed by Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, and that's going to be available on VOD starting on March 20th. I'll read you the official plot description from the distributor. Evan, played by Lou Taylor Pucci of Evil Dead and Thumbsucker fame, is a young American fleeing to Europe to escape his past. While backpacking along the Italian coast, everything changes during a stop at an idyllic Italian village where he meets and instantly connects with the enchanting and mysterious Louise. A flirtatious romance begins to bloom between the two. However, Evan soon realizes that Louise has been harboring a monstrous primordial secret that puts both their relationship and their lives in jeopardy. And if I had to give you like the uh, one sentence pitch line here, I would say it's basically H.P. Lovecraft's Before Sunrise. These two characters walking through these gorgeous Italian settings talking about their lives, trying to see if they can have a possible future together, and also there's monsters involved somehow, but I won't quite explain how. Um, the filmmakers, Justin Benson, Aaron Moorhead, are talented guys. They were the duo behind the low-budget horror film Resolution, which I think we've mentioned on this yeah, show before. Yeah, you were a big fan of that one. Yeah, it's a really outstanding little indie horror film. You can currently watch that one on Netflix. This is a little different, but it definitely has a similar feel they, at least so far, make character-based genre movies that are very heavy on emotions and the connections between people, and they're kind of, you know, they're indie movies. They're light on the special effects. Spring is a little bit bigger in terms of scale, and it's a better-looking movie. It looks really good. It's also one of the first movies where I've really noticed drone photography. There's a lot of establishing shots of this Italian village that are clearly done with a drone, and in fact, I asked the filmmakers when I saw it. They were in attendance, and after I saw it, I, I went up to them and and, and congratulated them on making a good film. And I said, you used a drone for those shots. And then we were talking about it. And yeah, they, I guess they had a connection that was able to get them a drone. And it adds an interesting texture. I'm sure it's something, and I've seen it since, but I'm sure it's something that's going to be increasingly used by filmmakers, drones for photography. But it's used well there. I've been seeing this girl. She's really pretty. But she gives me some 
doubts. You're the most attractive person I've ever seen. But that doesn't outweigh that you might be a mental patient, and I gotta make sure you're the kind of crazy I can deal with. No, no. I'm a bunch of confusing biochemistry and some crazy hormones. <laughs> Let's see if the yank of K-pop, like. I don't think you're ready for where this is going. Explain it to me. I don't know how much longer I'm gonna stay here. On the whole, I think the film could have used maybe a little more Lovecraft, a little less Linklater. There's a bit too much of the characters explaining the mythology by the end of it, instead of us just kind of witnessing the mythology, letting us see what's going on. But I really got swept up in the movie and the characters and the relationships between the two stars, Lou Taylor Pucci and, and the woman is an actress named Nadia Hilkert. They're both really good. They're excellent together. And it's an interesting mix. I saw it at Fantastic Fest last fall. It was one of my favorites that I saw there at the festival. And I think these guys are uh, some filmmakers to watch. If you haven't seen Resolution, check that out on Netflix. And if you're looking to follow that up, make it a double feature. Watch Spring, which will be available on VOD starting on March 20th. Our next pick, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this almost as like a, an experiment, Allison. I believe that I can make you want to watch a movie by, by just saying four words. Are you ready? I'm ready. Taylor Lautner does parkour. This is a sore subject for me because as we're here right now, I am missing the press screening of Tracers. Tracers is the name of the film. Yes. Taylor Lautner's parkour. On behalf of the SVU, on on behalf of the SVU Nation. I want to thank you for the sacrifice, the supreme thank sacrifice you. you're making, being here instead of it, watching it Taylor Lautner do parkour. It's still difficult. The good news is the film will be available on VOD on March 20th, and I'm sure you'll be watching it and then probably purchasing it so you can watch it over <laughs> and over. You briefly mentioned what it's about, but let me just read the synopsis. Wanted by the Chinese mafia, a New York City bike messenger escapes into the world of parkour. After meeting a beautiful stranger, I didn't even know there was a world of parkour to escape into. I mean, and it also feels about 10 years too late for there to be a world. That's not of, true. Like a lot of these details. How so, dare you? Mm. It's never too late for parkour. It's like there's no, there's always room for jello. There's always room for parkour. It's never too late. Live, keep living the dream. Go on. There's not much more to say. It's Taylor Lartner doing parkour. That's it. Are you in or are you out? I, I told you I would have been there. That's what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that's Tracer's. Available on VOD on March 20th. And finally, certainly, well, let, and you know what? It is last and least, I'm going to guess. But I, as one of the foremost movie masochists on the planet, is really looking forward to watching The Cobbler from director Thomas McCarthy and star Adam Sandler. It is available now on VOD. And you would think, just from reading the th- that combination, that this should be one of those movies where Adam Sandler stops phoning it in, making a movie with his buddies. He's working with a great indie director who's made some of my favorite indie dramas of the last couple of years, Win Win, The Visitor. Thomas McCarthy is a good filmmaker. And you would think pairing, you know, Sandler would, he'd bring his game up for this, sort of the way he does when he's worked with Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, that kind of thing. But at least according to the critics who've seen this movie, it premiered at Toronto, it somehow turned out worse than a movie that he just phoned in. That's what I've read from everyone who's seen it. Allison's nodding because she has seen it. I have seen and it. And she agrees. Not only have I seen it, I got one of the maybe three interviews that oh, really? Adam Sandler and Thomas McCarthy did at Toronto. And it was so glum mm. and so not filled with them talking. I don't know what to do with it. Really? You've never yes. published it. I have not because I have 
uh, Adam Sandler does not like to do interviews, incidentally. He's one of the only two people, I guess because he's feel, he feels he's been misquoted before, one of the only two people I've ever interviewed who has insisted on recording it himself as really? well. Really? Yes. The that other is person being Michael Mann. Huh. Okay. Yes. I wouldn't have expected that either. All right. Well, anyway, I'd like to see the Adam Sandler Michael Mann movie, and I bet the press junket for that would be a delight. <laughs> but in the meantime, let's explain what The Cobbler is about for people. It is about a cobbler. I'll go on. Adam Sandler plays the cobbler. He finds, correct me if I'm wrong, a magical sewing machine or cobbling it's a machine. Magical stitcher. A stitcher it, for shoes. And one should point out, it's also, it ties back to his Jewish roots. That you see in flashbacks, the stitcher being used. I see. By, I think, like, you know, early 19th century or... or Jewish early, immigrants. Yes, 20th century, Lower East Side. Okay. Cobblers. Okay. And it, it somehow passes to Adam Sandler, who realizes that when he fixes a pair of shoes with it, he when he puts on the shoes, he can become that person. He looks exactly like them. And then he uses this to, as I understand it, become people of other races in very uncomfortable ways. Yes. And then to yeah. eventually... Yes. That's like, yes. Yes, that is correct. And to eventually fight gentrification. As you do. As you do. Well, Allison has seen it, but I have not. And I ha cannot tell you the last time I was this excited to see a bad movie. I cannot wait... Just as you had to make a sacrifice, honestly, I almost canceled my South by Southwest trip when I realized it was coming out this weekend. So badly do I want to watch it. But I know it'll be waiting for me on VOD when I get back. So I cannot wait to watch it, write about it, shout about it from the heavens. That is The Cobbler, and that's going to be available on VOD right now, actually. I want to understand what justice is. <laughs> that's a big one. I know. There's our justice, the kind men create. We base it on things like the Ten Commandments. But those can be read a million different ways. Thou shalt not kill seems pretty clear. Who's to say? If we didn't kill, others would kill instead of us. There's a lot of killing in the Bible. King David was a warrior. How do you reconcile that with the laws that God gave Moses? Even those laws require interpretation. There are two laws we have to remember above all else. He tells us to love God and to love each other. You can't love the people you kill. We're going to shake things up a bit this week by jumping right into our listener's choice review. <gasps> I know. It's like Mercy. cats and dogs living together. <laughs> Every episode, as you know, we let you choose our main review by giving you three options on which to vote. Uh, this time around, your choices were the fictionalized Nick Cave documentary, 20,000 Days on Earth, season three of Netflix's original series, House of Cards, and Hits, David Cross's directorial debut. And while 20,000 Days on Earth held on for a while, House mm. of Cards eventually pulled away to be the winner with over 45% of the vote. House of Cards doesn't really need much of an introduction at this point. We've talked about the previous seasons on episodes number 28, which was live from Videology, and episode number 54. So you can find those if you're curious to hear our thoughts on the earlier seasons. House of Cards isn't Netflix's first original series, nor would I say it's the best, but it is certainly the flagship one that put the streaming service on the map in terms of original programming. 
developed by Bo Willimon and adapted from a much shorter, at this point, BBC miniseries of the same name. House of Cards is the story of South Carolina Democrat Frank Underwood, played by Kevin Spacey, and his equally calculating wife, Claire Underwood, played by Robin Wright, as they scheme their way through Washington, D.C., I think we're going to avoid talking about any major spoilers towards the end of the the latter half of this season, though this season is lighter on big twists. We can discuss this. I I think we should be free to discuss the premise, though, because... Agreed. No. If you haven't seen the previous two seasons, uh, we're going to tell you what happens up till now because it's going to be tough to discuss it otherwise. Yeah, so so we're going to discuss the basic setup of this season, and there are some details that... I think we're kind of left hanging at the end of last season that we have to mention. Yes. So if you're very sensitive about spoilers, go, maybe the skip other two this. Se- yeah. Yes, and the other two seasons one. of discussion are available already. So go back and start the whole thing. Yes. So at the end of season two, Frank Underwood manipulated his way into the presidency. Manipulated? Why, that's an exaggeration, mm, Allison. All without having been elected <laughs> or as vice president, which he was before. Yep. Season three is a look at how he handles being president and how he struggles really, while his formerly very solid relationship with Claire starts to show some cracks. There's a storyline involving Russia, with uh, Lars Mikkelsen playing Viktor Petrov, who's Mm. basically Putin. Uh, Elizabeth Marvel plays Heather Dunbar, a special prosecutor who becomes something of a nemesis for Frank. And Paul Sparks plays Thomas Yates, a a novelist. (laughs) Also, Michael Kelly returns as Underwood's former right-hand man, Doug Stamper, who looked Pretty damn dead yeah. at the end of season two. Very dead. But who turned out not to be in this season. Uh, the, fo- the focus uh, is much more on relationships this season, mm. particularly the Underwood marriage and Doug's relationship or non-relationship with the Underwoods. So, Matt, my question for you is, we've seen Frank Underwood be effective and amoral. Yes. He's kind of... I would say a dark answer to the wish fulfillment of the West Wing and this very idealistic president. Mm -hmm. He's a politician who isn't idealistic, but who gets things done. Right. What do you think of him as a president? Is he a good president? Well, you know, that's kind of hard to say based on what we're seeing here. What, what is interesting though, is he is less outwardly evil. I thought than he was in previous seasons where he seems purely self-motivated. Sure. He gets things done, but it's all about his, quest for power he wants to be the man in charge and now he he has that he's ascended to the throne right he has everything he wanted and it's like be careful what you wish for and yes you could say that a lot of what he's doing in this season is motivated by his desire for legacy he keeps mentioning that word allison legacy but he also seems to be i mean these seems to be things that a good president would do he wants to create jobs he wants to uh do things to help the country so he seems, le- I thought, less outwardly, like, he's not straight up murdering people like he used to. So he seems to have, at times, like, the, the, the nation's best interests at heart, which I found kind of interesting. That uh, he didn't, now certainly he's still calculating and cold and manipulative, and when he has to do something, he'll do it. But I was kind of surprised to see that they didn't portray him as, like, King Evil, but that, as you say, it's much more about, like, a relationship drama. It, at times, it almost felt like a unfunny sitcom, like, because it is so much about, like, him and Claire and the relationship between the president and the first lady. And while it isn't as dramatic and exciting, I guess you would say, as the, the previous season, 
and I wouldn't say I liked it overall as much as the previous season, I did find that kind of interesting, and I did find myself, like, imagining, like, okay, obviously this is all fiction and fake, and I don't buy a lot of what's happening, but what is it like for Barack Obama and Michelle Obama? And it got me thinking about that, which I kind of enjoyed. I really like Robin Wright in this season. She's I think great. she really comes into her own. Yeah, she's and she directed a few episodes. She directed a few episodes. I think her character gets a great arc. I didn't overall like this season that much, I mm. think, certainly compared to last season. I think our general, we, we sort of agreed on being mixed on the first season, yes. liking the second season, which went super much, over the top. Yeah, it was very trashy. And I feel like the show didn't, for me, successfully kind of pull back into the realms of less over the top. Uh, having had an, a previous season that involved like two scenes of like wacky threesomes yes you know murder uh all kind of crazy manipulations right. like really like heightened the crazy things that happen to come back around to like playing power games with putin basically right. and actual like international uh, and the un and like doing you know policy policy stuff. yeah and uh, and actually like all of the arguments over underwood's desire to basically use FEMA as a piggy unfairly, bank. yes, yeah. as a piggy bank in order to fund his jobs operation. Certainly things that can be interesting, but I felt like they were lacking in drama as compared to what happened last season. I think that's totally fair. It's definitely less juicy. And I think what was so fun about the last season was that it was this really well-made show, but it was just absolute trash, you know? And this season is definitely less trashy in a way that like I would like it to be more trashy. I completely agree. And there are flashes of it here or there, but I do agree. It is it is much more about like the running of the country and the relationship. And it's not so much about, yeah, crazy threesomes and murder, although there is a little bit of, of that. And there are some there's like at least one really weird sex scene. But part of the problem is, at least from that perspective, is that the president and Claire aren't getting along. So there's going to be less, you know, creepy sex scenes. Right. Because and they're not having sex scenes at all. At all. Right. And I don't know. I, I'm actually very mixed on how well I think House of Cards works as a political drama mm. because its politics are so weird. Yeah. Like his Underwood's America Works plan that he's so attached to. It's right. He's. It's ridiculous. Killing, yeah, he's going to take out Social Security and basically, like, all benefits in no. order to, like, it, it doesn't really make sense. And they always do that thing on this show. They do it at least once or twice on this season where they say, well, there's a precedent for this, which means that it happened one random time in 300 years, and they use that as an excuse to do something we don't buy, like the whole subplot with Robin Wright's character becoming the UN ambassador and she goes through a hearing but then she's appointed right, in he just recess. recess appoints her after she after the Senate didn't you know didn't give her basically didn't confirm, didn't her. confirm her and there's no kind of back there would be huge backlash right people just accept it and then later on like well I guess this is a little bit of a spoiler but stuff happens and you would think this would be huge blowback but we find out that basically the public loves Claire more than ever and I would think that what happens to her would have some sort of impact on her professional development and her public profile. Yeah, it never really balances these sometimes very extreme things that the right. Underwoods do in office and then what how the public is supposed to react. Well, that's the thing. The, the previous seasons were so, especially the last, the second season, was so disconnected from reality that you didn't really mind that the politics were so crazy because it fit. Everything fit together. It was Everything was heightened. Here, they've kind of tamped down on the emotional excess, 
but the political side is still so ridiculous that they don't match. Now you have a kind of sedate relationship story with a uh, a eye-rollingly outrageous political side. Yeah, and it spends a lot of time on politics. I mean, as they basically influence these personal relationships, but it's certainly those two things are tied up, and those are not. Those are not necessarily the things that I look f- like look for in the show. Yeah. What did you think of how much? I mean, Doug Stamper is a major character yes. in this season. Yes. We, what did yeah. you think of him as like this kind of parallel story? I really hated it. Yeah. I was very disappointed when he showed up alive. I loved the way they they sort of like shocked us at the end of last season with, oh my god, they killed Doug, and I thought that his death would have been very interesting to explore and how it resonated with the characters, and so my initial reaction when he was alive was shock. And kind of annoyance, but then go, oh, let's see what they do with this. Clearly, they had a reason. And then by the end of the season, you see that, yes, that they did, I guess, have a reason. But I've, even with the reason, even for the, 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 the payoff, I found it generally pretty indefensible and at just a huge waste of time. And for what they brought him back for, I thought was totally worthless. Yeah, a lot of this season, I think, feels a bit like it's the show's in a holding pattern yes. in preparation for an election that will presumably, if it's presumably renewed, will be the focus of the next season. I agree with you. I did, And especially his character. And I had heard, I don't know if this is true or not, I thought I had heard they were originally planning on doing three seasons. And to me, the end of the second season seemed to build to a big final season. And it seems to me that they got there and they were like, no, we're going to keep going. And that's great because I do like the show. I enjoy, I, I enjoy watching it, even though we're kind of bashing it a little bit. I, I still overall enjoyed watching the show. But there were there was a lot of, like, all the stuff with Doug felt like they were just marking time with him and stretching this thing out so that they could eventually do something with him that they dragged that storyline out so long. And this is something else I wanted to ask you about, which was, to me, while the serious television revolution has been almost entirely wonderful. There's like one thing about it that kind of bugs me, which is that now as we move from the episode to the season as the major unit of storytelling on television, it seems like there's this like fear to tell any story that's not the entire season in length. And the Doug story is a perfect example. That should have been wrapped up in an episode or two, but they drag it out over 13 episodes. And it's just like, not everything needs to be told in the entire season. Did you feel that way? I it definitely felt dragged out. I I mean, I I think Michael Kelly's a good actor, and he's I think a great actor. Character, I loved him in the previous two seasons, right? But it does. It's it, not it, his fault. It definitely did feel. It added to that feeling of marking time, as you said, and I mean, it, it did tie into an aspect of Underwood, of Francis Underwood, that I think is was well explored here having been built up from previous seasons which is that Francis Underwood is very good at manipulating people in the moment and terrible at keeping them on his side right you know that he, he he's, he's the he, juggler he just right. is in, and in the he, in the moment he, he does know he demands loyalty from people and but gives them back. nothing yes. yes and that you see all of this blowback Right. You know, from multiple characters. Right. Including some major characters. Sure. As they eventually grow tired of of this relationship. And Doug is sort of set up as the perfect, right? The perfect follower. The one who doesn't need anything. Who is so tied in with the exception of whatever price he may have paid that he's willing to, you know, to, to figure out a path that, that, to, to figure out how to make that work. But 
I, I mean, that's, it spends so much screen time. Yeah, way too much. On that. And and everything that they're doing there is basically continuing the drama from the previous season, which was so much more intense and palpable because it was fresh. And it was like, you know, what they were juggling there to return to that sort of metaphor. It's like, it was like fresh and recent. Now it's like they're just kind of lazily keeping it going and extending it past its sell-by date. And I personally felt like I knew exactly what was going to happen with that storyline. I did too. I was not shocked in the slightest where it went. I knew when he was doing all these machinations, I could have told you, if you'd asked me at episode five, what's the outcome? I would have gotten like four out of the five components of it. Absolutely right. He, I was like watching, I was like, he is the proverbial appendix of the body that is House of Cards. He used to serve a purpose and now he's just this vestigial thing that's hanging around. And I guess by the end of the season, he's there again with purpose and maybe in future seasons he'll have a purpose. But boy, oh boy, he was just left out to dry this season a lot. And we had to watch a lot of it. What did you think about the whole Petrov aspect? That's the other big sort of component to this season that we haven't talked about is the the, 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 the kind of cold war that begins to brew between United States and Russia. Well, I liked that it showed Underwood basically out of his depth a bit that yeah. he made a lot of mistakes and that he he didn't handle that situation well he didn't he underestimated Petrov he didn't have a good read on the situation and having had this character who has been so for the most part formidable over those first two seasons right to, to see him on this larger stage flounder a bit I really appreciated mm -hmm. and I appreciated that he was playing games against someone who had entirely different rules right. right and that he didn't ever seem to really grasp that yeah I, I liked that aspect I mean I thought as somewhat garbled as that larger storyline felt to me I really like the scenes of him with Petrov I, I we're almost exactly on the same page I love the fact that he had found this equal I think that was something a lot of people complained about too with the previous season that it was like too easy they for just tore through right. all of their enemies and yeah. we sort of enjoyed the juiciness of that 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 the other characters were so dumb but if you that was your complaint here's the answer here's this character who is maybe arguably even smarter than underwood is and he totally outflanks him and i thought the actor was really great i enjoyed every time he came up my big gripe was that plot line just vanishes but the last like three or four episodes it just goes away and they're because they become so focused on the campaign that comes up and the and the the big dynamic between Claire and Frank, and both of those storylines are interesting. But I just again, I was like, why did we spend so much time on that for so little payoff? Uh, it it was it was basically a like a convenience of plot twist. Like these are the things we need to happen to do what we want to do on the show, which is kind of I guess you could argue that's really what a lot of the season was. We want to push. Uh, we want. Frank and Claire to be working together somehow. So they create all that rigmarole with the ambassadorship, which then doesn't work out. And then there's all that stuff with that. And then there's the whole thing with Petrov, which creates additional tension. But then that kind of peters out as well. It just, there, there was a lot in this season while I enjoyed a lot of the moments and the, and the performances are great. And the other thing I, we haven't mentioned at all is this show looks even better than ever. It is a gorgeous show. And I love the creation of the white house. I just love looking at the sets and the lighting. Oh my God. It's a great looking show for all of that. I think the overall 13 episode chunk was a little undercooked, a little unsatisfying this year. Yeah, I agree. And it still went down very easy. I, I had oh, no oh, yeah. problem. In fact, I feel like it was easier for me to binge watch this season than maybe last the last two seasons, in part because it felt less dense. Mm. That there were I, the episodes where I didn't feel like 
they were devoted to basically people talking in you know relationship dramas and i felt as opposed to some of the political maneuverings uh particularly like the china storyline in the last season where i felt like i really had to parse the bridge all about the bridge yeah that that this felt more straightforward raymond tusk yes exactly uh, this felt more straightforward. I mean, it was it, it's very much about what happens between Frank and Claire Underwood, ultimately. Yeah. And I do think, you know, this has been so much, this has been Kevin Spacey's show. He, like, gleefully gnaws the scenery. He, you know, with that accent, which seems to get thicker and thicker every season. Uh, I, and it... I really actually the the thing that I think that this season did the best was to show to not just show how the power has shifted in their relationship, but to show to shift the balance of the show towards Robin Wright more. Mm. She's you know, great. She's uh, there's less of the kind of theatricality of uh, Underwood talking to the camera. He still does it, but not nearly as much as he did in previous seasons. It's true, and I kind of missed it. I have to I tell missed you. It too. I did. And what my one of my favorite moments in the entire season is the one where he's on his plane and he's talking to the potential donor or whatever and he's talking about meat futures or whatever it is and he just looks to the camera and holds up at his wrist he's like please kill me now it's just like <laughs> that's what that get, lets you do and it's such a great moment there I, I felt like i needed more of them well this year. i think it was deliberate to kind of shut you out of his head a bit mm. where where you start to side with her more that's because a great you point. understand how much she feels she feels it's shut not, out. Right. It's right. shut out. It's not an equal partnership anymore. She's wondering what her place is. It's a what, fair point. What did you think of the novelist storyline? Again, it felt a lot to me like a means to an end. And while that was good because it actually, again, gave us some very interesting scenes, found the ending a little predictable and a little unsatisfying uh, because of that. Yeah, a very anticlimactic, given how much time is devoted to. As much as I like that actor, mm. and I think he made he made a lot of unexpected choices in that role. I think that he was he very underplayed, underplayed in a way that I really liked. Yes, but it that storyline did end in such a kind of shrug of a. There's a lot of shrugs, <laughs> storylines that ended in shrugs in the, in this season. Yeah, yeah. I. Do you feel like? Do you feel like this show is still like a good kind of indicator of where Netflix is as I mean, like, do you feel like this is still a good flagship show for Netflix? Do you feel like Netflix has kind of moved beyond it? There was something I was thinking of in watching this is that in some ways House of Cards has always felt a little hampered by its need to be important. Right. And I felt it again this season that it's more fun when it's less self-serious. That's an interesting point. And I feel like, it does that. It does still fill that role for them. I mean, it is a ex like I was saying. It looks great. This show looks expensive. I mean, the White House in this show could not have come cheap because it is so detailed and lavishly appointed, and all of the costuming. I kept. I was like, Robin Wright's costumes must oh, yeah. have cost a fortune. She oh, well, looks and, stunning. And most yeah, hers, Jackie, Jackie as like well. They're they're like these beautiful kind of like pencil dresses. Oh and my goodness, like that are. Yeah, every the like costuming the, on the this costuming, show is it, incredible. It is, yeah. And I just, I yeah. So I, I, I guess I, it, f it felt to me like it's still, it's still that really glossy show. Whereas something like Orange is the New Black, which I think we both probably prefer yeah. as a show to House of Cards, definitely does not look as good as this show does. This show could be on any network, it could be on any cable channel, and it would not look out of place at all. It looks great. 
I don't disagree, though, that I enjoy it more when it kind of doesn't have that burden of importance. And I thought last season it balanced those things really well. It looked great. If you really wanted to take it seriously, I guess you could. But it was such a trashy soap opera. And that's what I like best about it, too. And I, I, I felt was a little missing this season. Yeah, I, I did think back onto how season two started the, right like, the, with oh. this big twist in the first episode nothing is in this season is as good as that first no. episode of the second and there, season it, it seems to have no particular interest in doing that and yeah right but but again when you're doing these 13 episode things and you're the, the idea is to get people to watch the whole thing to blaze through it to binge through it there's got to be some really intense hook and i don't think th- does this season have one not that i not can think really of. you know there's a couple of there's there's the storyline with Doug. There's the storyline with Russia. There's the relationship between them. But none of them really drives the season where you're just like, I got to watch the next one. I mean, like you said, it wasn't hard to watch the whole thing, but I didn't find it as as addictive as as the last one. There are moments where I think it has, you know, great stuff. I thought the seventh episode, which was the one where the 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 frac- the, the uh, fissures in the relationship really start to show was really great. The stuff with the Tibetan monks and their art and the uh, where he goes to visit the the FDR memorial and he looks at the Eleanor Roosevelt memorial and the I thought all that stuff was really smart and really great. And that was my favorite episode of the season. But that was to me that felt a little bit like an aberration. Like for some reason that episode had a lot of really interesting kind of subtext and and visual detail and resonance and everything came together there. Whereas in a lot of the other episodes they were a little more imperfect. I really liked the the debate. The debate is good too. As as improbable as the debate also Highly seems. improbable. Yeah, but I, I did enjoy that. And uh, yeah, as we wrap this up, I do think you the point you made, it is the glossiest show. It's got great actors. Great actors, great great sets, got, great costumes. And beautiful cinematography. I think yeah. this season more than previous seasons, I've just the way that faces are filmed, uh, I think, you know, really stood out to me. There, are, I, maybe because it was they spent more time on characters as they were in these really kind of transitional places. Mm. But just, I, I think, there was a real appreciation for the nuances of these actors' faces, and uh, I don't know. I mean, that was nice. But yeah, I'll still be looking forward to season four. Uh, you know, the, the where they leave it makes me want to see the next season. But I, I definitely felt this was probably the weakest of the three seasons so far. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's House of Cards Season 3, and it's available now on Netflix. Allison and I are getting ready to leave tomorrow morning for the South by Southwest Film Festival. So we're going to keep things a little looser, a little more casual here. We're just going to kind of run through some other recommendations of television shows we've been watching. And uh, Allison, I think you're going to start. Do you have uh, your first pick, something you've been watching lately and want to recommend? I do. This is 
it's a weird recommendation because I started it as something I could have on in the background, which is actually sure. a, like a, a solid chunk of the TV that I watch is things that I want to, I use as like wallpaper in the sure. background. So I started it as that. And then I kind of got sucked into it. And now that I've watched all of it, I have to admit that I have surrendered to and totally enjoy Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries oh. on Netflix. Yes, this is an Australian series starring Essie Davis, who played Amelia, the, the mom in The Babadook. And there's there's no way around this. This is a show about a flapper who solves crimes yep. in 1920s Melbourne. My wife is a huge fan. Yeah, she watched the whole series. It's, I have watched the whole series, too. It's based on a series of novels that I have never heard of. Uh, mystery novels and the crimes are often kind of excuses for peeks into different settings in like period life in in that in around australia there's a dance hall murder there's a ladies magazine murder there's a racing car club murder a radio station murder uh, and franny fisher is a free spirit who inherited a title and a fortune after world war ii and is the, not married, has kind of assembled this family of choice, including her like maid slash protege, these taxi drivers slash communists, and an adopted daughter, um, wears great costumes, nothing ever gets too dangerous, and there's always this kind of theatrical quality to the mysteries, often undercover is involved. Um, that said, I think there is something kind of unusual and that stands out about the show's unapologetic feminism. It, you know, Miss Fisher runs up against all sorts of period-ready restrictions on, on being female and confronts them, and is also always aware of the fact that she is in an exceptional place in terms of the freedom that's offered her, freedoms that are not available to a lot of the other women that she encounters. Uh, and she has a very charming will-they-or-won't-they relationship with de Detective Inspector Jack Robinson, by Nathan Page, but she also takes lovers all the time. She likes sex. She's unapologetic about it. And I think the combination of such an overtly progressive sensibility and such an old-fashioned kind of show, it's the kind of show that I would think my parents would like, except they don't because they told me, <laughs> so I'm the only <laughs> one who likes it, uh, is startling and I think really makes it stand out. As much as this show feels like TV comfort food. It really does. I feel like it, it's like gorging on pudding. It mm, it has pudding. TV. It pudding. has a very feminist, uh, sometimes maybe like almost panderingly feminist sensibility, and I really enjoyed that. So Miss Fisher, Fisher's Murder Mysteries streaming on Netflix. Yeah, my wife uh, watched the whole show, and when she found it on there, she like couldn't stop talking about it. She's like, "This show is so great! It's a, she's a flapper. She solves mysteries." And uh, it reminds me, I'm not one of my recommendations because I actually didn't think the show was that great. But hearing you describe it kind of sounds a little like Agent Carter, too. Yes. Which was fun. I didn't love that show. I didn't actually didn't, we haven't gotten through it yet. We've been watching that, my wife and I together. But also kind of like, you know, tough female heroine dealing with sexism in this past time. And, uh, you know, that's, that's interesting. Are there any other, I wonder if this is a, is this a trend or we're one show away. If you can you think of one more, you've got a trend piece you could write right now, Allison. Old timey, old timey uh, action heroines or revisionist, or, yeah, kind of revisionist feminism action heroines. Uh, I'll think on it because when I guess working. call the midwife sort of fits in that as well. I think she's watched that one too. Yep. Yeah. There you go. All right. My first pick is, uh, it's a, it's a mystery of a different sort. And it's on HBO right now. And we don't usually recommend stuff on HBO, but that's actually one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this now is that if people haven't heard, HBO is finally launching their standalone 
Netflix-esque service called HBO Now, I believe. So you won't need to have cable or parents who have cable who will give you their subscription, uh, their but password. I believe you will need Apple TV, right? Well, you can use it on your computer, I believe. Uh, okay. So if you have a laptop, you can use it on any laptop. But if you want to watch on your television or on your tablets, you need an Apple TV or an iPad or an iPhone at least to start. And I think it's 15 bucks a month, so it's more than Netflix, but you're going to get all the HBO shows and stuff. And the show that I'm recommending is actually on right now. The final episode, I guess, will have aired by the time people hear this, and that is The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst. And I'm starting to see people talking about it now, now that it's almost over. Five out of the six episodes have aired while we're recording this, but it, it... to me, it seemed saddled with really bad timing. It debuted opposite the Grammys. I think the third episode was opposite the Oscars. They've also had shows like Better Call Saul and The Walking Dead coming back. It's on Sunday nights, so very competitive time slot. HBO probably should have put it somewhere else, but you know this better than I do, right? They just, just it, where they put everything on programming su- always ends up on Sundays, yeah. Yeah, they, I think they need to plant a flag on another night because Sundays are getting awfully crowded, and I don't even watch that much TV, but... Yeah, this show has kind of gone under the radar, but it's really, really fascinating. It is very much like the podcast Serial, if you've listened to that. It is this serialized murder mystery. It's a true crime story. It's about this guy named Robert Durst. He is the heir or was one of the heirs to this massive New York real estate fortune. But throughout his life, he has been involved in these horrifying, grisly murders. But he continues to... Sort of like Serial, he continues to protest his ignorant, his innocence, rather, to this day. And the show actually has him being interviewed. Again, very much like Serial, with the added bonus that you can actually see the guy being interviewed. Uh, the director, Andrew Jarecki, who directed the excellent documentary Capturing the Freedmen's, is the director here. And you see him sitting down with Robert Durst and talking through all these various cases. Not just one, not just one murder, multiple murders that this guy has been... Uh, potentially involved in throughout his life. And he explains every re- all these crazy coincidences, how he's just an incredibly unlucky guy. And have you seen the show yet, Allison? I haven't. I know a lot of people were talking about it because of something that happened in the last episode. Yeah, there was a big uh, revelation in the, yeah. in the fifth episode. I've been, I feel like at this point, I'm just going to wait till it's all out there and then binge on it it's going to be an, yeah it's only six it's going to end up being six episodes you could we could watch it in a in a saturday afternoon I, I i mean i binged like the first three two or three and yeah it's it's very bingeable high bingeability and very interesting and juicy and the di- the, the, the big difference between this and serial besides the visual component you can actually see robert durst and he looks i don't mean to judge a book by its cover but the man looks crazy he looks incredibly <laughs> creepy he blinks the way he blinks, I've never seen a human being blink this way before. He blinks like an alien or a, I don't know what. He just has these really exaggerated blinks as he's talking, and it it, uh, it gets your attention anyway. So it's it's a very fascinating show. And oh, the other thing that's a little different from Serial is they really went out of their way to get a lot of the detectives who've investigated his cases. That was something that was kind of missing from Serial. You could argue it made that show better because it kept it more from the the perspective of the hosts, but uh, this one really has the detectives telling you what they did, how they investigated, what they think, whether they think Robert Durst is innocent or guilty. And you get a, it felt, feels very comprehensive, but it's very well structured to keep that serialized aspect going. It's absolutely fascinating. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing the last episode 
and I encourage people to check it out if you like Serial, or if you, even if you haven't listened to Serial, I think it's a really compelling, fascinating, true crime story, and you really get down to that thing where it's like all the, the circumstantial evidence seems to suggest this guy did it, but here he is sitting in front of you insisting he's an innocent man, and you hear him and you look at him, and the cognitive dissonance between what you're seeing and feeling and what he's saying is just endlessly, endlessly interesting to think about and parse through, and so it's, yeah, it's it's really great. So that's The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst. It's available now on HBO Go, but uh, when HBO Now launches in early April, I have to assume it's all going to be available on there as well. All right. Well, my second pick is a slightly older show. I noticed it popped up on Hulu Plus and watched the f- went back and watched the first episode again, which I really liked. It's also available on Amazon Prime. And it is Dead Like Me, which is the Showtime series created by Brian Fuller. It was the first series he created. He actually ended up leaving it. He was, had such a bad experience, but leaving it during the first season. You know, Brian Fuller went on to do Wonderfalls, which is another series I liked a lot, and Pushing Daisies. And now he's doing Hannibal, which is, you know, his very beautiful and incredibly disturbing series based on Thomas Harris's characters, including Hannibal Lecter. So clearly Fuller has a very peculiar and I think very distinctive sensibility and likes his combinations of of darkness and visual flair. If Hannibal, you know, veers on the side of darkness, seriously, Dead Like Me veers more on the side of whimsy, though it's also about death. Uh, The main character, played by Ellen Muth, uh, George Lass, is killed in a freak accident after she's dropped out of college and started working at a temp agency. And she ends up in a kind of purgatorial existence as a grim reaper, responsible for collecting the souls of other people who die in accidents, murders, and suicides. Uh, and there are other grim reapers. They're played by Callum Blue, Laura Harris, Jasmine Guy, and Mandy Patinkin. And uh, they, all have, they all get assigned souls to collect And the show, despite being a little ragged, does two things really wonderfully, I think. First, it shows George's family in mourning since she doesn't go away. She's still around, just no longer recognizable. And it kind of delves into how different people mourn, including how her younger sister mourns in ways that are not necessarily easy. And it also... it, it. you know, George is a character who was indifferent to everything in life and who was working a terrible temp job. And there's something that's sort of like a temp job about being a Grim Reaper. It's this stay in between two bigger things. And uh, there's a lot of kind of regularity. She has coworkers she doesn't necessarily get along with all the time. They meet at a, di- at a diner and they get assignments on post-its. And I, I really enjoyed how the show connected the kind of like uh, rote work with this life and death scenario. It's a small show. I think, you know, it lasted two seasons. It was never about being giant, like hugely ambitious. Uh, but I, I think for what the tone it, tr- it tried to achieve and the quirkiness of it without ever being insipid, it works really well. Uh, you know, as much as full, it wasn't maybe Fuller's extended vision, I think it, it shows a lot of his sensibility and it's pretty charming. And so I was happy to see that pop back up on Hulu Plus. And as I said, it's also on Amazon Prime. If you haven't seen it or if it's been a while, it holds up dead like me. 
All right. I have to check that show out. That one I haven't watched. My next pick is another current show. Just started airing. I think the first episode aired on March 1st. I've only seen the first one supersized or technically two episodes. I think there is a third episode that's already available. I just haven't had a chance to watch it yet. But it is called The Last Man on Earth. And this is the new show starring and created by, which I was surprised to see, Will Forte, the the great SNL cast member and star and guiding light of one of the finest comedies ever made, MacGruber. <laughs> and The Last Man on Earth is actually the, the pilot was directed by Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, the guys behind 21 and 22 Jump Street and the Lego movie. So excellent pedigree. And I just love the premise, which is basically the Omega Man but a comedy, like a super dark, depressing comedy where it's a few years in the future. Will Forte plays this guy who's the only person left on Earth. And for a lot of the episode, the first episode, that's it. He's just wandering around. He's the last man left on Earth. He's the last man left on Earth. That's right. And there are some twists, which I won't spoil for people. But it, I, what, I don't know how long they'll be able to sustain this premise. But I just thought the first episode was, and I guess the first two episodes, because they were sort of together, but it was like 44 minutes. It was like a two-part episode, whatever. It was just so fabulous. The the gutsiness to do this show a- as a comedy, to make it funny, to try to find the humor in being a suicidal last man on Earth and all the potential conflicts that would arise and what might happen after you're the last man on Earth. My heart sung watching this. It was like the show that I never knew I wanted, and then here it was in all of its glory. And I, I maybe I am a little bit of a softie for Will Forte. I do think he is just a genius. So the fact that it is so much of him and, and feels almost like almost like a movie, I thought, you know, the start of a movie. Could you know it could have made a, a movie since all the other versions of this that are serious are movies like I Am Legend and The Omega Man and Last Man on, on Earth and all that stuff. I, I, I don't know. I just it, it doesn't feel it's a show on Fox, right? I mean, I'm watching it on Hulu. That's where people can find it. But it doesn't feel like a, a, a broadcast television sitcom. It feels like it's it's really pretty far out there in terms of the tone, the style of the humor, the darkness of the humor. It's really pretty great. You're nodding a lot, Allison. Do you like well, the show too? I, I really like the first episode. Yeah. I had doubts about developments that happened in towards the end of that longer yes. first episode. Yes. And yeah, that's what I say when I'm not sure like, when I say that I'm not sure how they're going to be able to sustain it. Although I you know, there are things that I think work to, work to its favor in that I'm like as I'm saying it's nothing like your typical sitcom. Some of the stuff that I think you're referring to actually kind of makes it more like a regular sitcom in a way that could potentially be very fruitful. I, I'm not sure. I'm a little nervous too. And like I said, I'm not sure how, uh, how long the premise will sustain itself. And I kind of feel like just Forte by himself, if they could have had the, the, the balls to go for that for 13 episodes, <laughs> I would have loved that so much. But it would just be a comedy about someone slowly going insane. Yes. <laughs> and by therein, Allison would contain a truth of life. Not just in the post-apocalypse, but in the pre-apocalypse as I well. I like it. Let's write them a sternly worded letter. I don't think it needs to be stern. I think it can be gently encouraging. But uh, yeah, so you're right. The show could go in a. It could go south. It could go sour. But with the people that are involved, I have a lot of faith that it won't actually. And it's only three episodes so far, and I'm gonna I'm gonna be watching. Hopefully that they can keep up that level of quality. I'm really excited. 
I wasn't all that interested in it for some reason beforehand, but I did after seeing how much people enjoyed that first episode, I checked it out and I I had to agree. I bought in. I I really liked it. So I encourage people to check it check it out. Get in on the ground floor while it's still relatively new. All the episodes so far are available on Hulu. That is The Last Man on Earth. Let us do an even more brief and concise version of Singer and Wilmore's completely concise and totally succinct new release roundup. Allison, you're going to tell us about two new action films that were released this past weekend. Yes. Well, one is has been released this past weekend and one is coming up. Oh, okay. Yes. It's the first is Run All Night, the latest in the Liam Neeson action oeuvre and thoroughly enjoyable. You know, it's got Liam Neeson shooting guys and fighting guys and avenging, you know, helping out his son, played by Joel Kinnaman. And it's set in the outer boroughs, including Queens, a borough that doesn't get a lot of play in rough and tumble New York movies, which I appreciated. And Neeson's really working the outer boroughs. He did Brooklyn and uh, Walk Among the Tombstones, yeah, which absolutely. I really enjoyed. And like it. I, uh, the two things I will say about this... Uh, it's one of the first movies, aside from Catfish, the documentary, that I can see that seems to be strongly stylistically influenced by Google Maps. Okay. Like it goes, it hovers across the city sure. and then zooms in sure. like for Google Street View. And that I will miss Liam Neeson when he supposedly retires from action movie making in two years. I think that's what he's, the timeline he's kind of seeing for himself. Yeah. Because as much as these movies do blur together a bit, this one was very enjoyable. In it was. How it you like this one. Yes. In how it uses Liam Neeson doing what's kind of become his shtick. Uh, it, it works well. So run all night. Uh, and then the gunman is basically Sean Penn's attempt to set himself up to be Liam Neeson. Right. He's it is, What's it's that, Liam Neeson? You're retiring? Well, I'm getting older, and I can yes, do action. I can do this. It's you know directed by Pierre Morel, who directed who did Taken. Taken. Yes. Uh, it's it's a little more. I'd say it's like more of a born movie without the amnesia. Like it's a kind of a very Euro Stripped action down. movie, but also it's got a, it's, he plays a former special soldiers operative who kind of. I was Sean Penn. That's what I want to know. He was not bad. Here is the thing I will say about Sean Penn. He's shirtless a lot. I know that Sean Penn has somehow decided to become super buff. It's weird. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't. You're seeing like Sean Penn's like kind of battered face on top of this like really. He's jacked. Yes, and he's he's like more shirtless than he shows more skin than the female lead. And fascinating. It's weird. I mean. I'm good for him for being in such good shape as a 54 year old, but like, it's weird. It's Sean Penn. I don't know. Well, I'm sold. Anyway, I uh, you know, he doesn't do a bad job. He's just he's no Liam Neeson. Though. So that's the topless gunman is what it's called. The topless gunman, and he run, plays run Mike Gunman. Neeson. I'm assuming. He yeah he plays Joe I, Gunman. I forget his his character's name. <laughs> yeah, he plays G U Unman. It's no? possible. Joe Gunman sounds good to me. What's Liam Neeson's name in Run All Night? Is it like Jimmy? It's not. <laughs> that's <laughs> they're, that's they're disappointing. Playing, he's playing like kind of old, like uh, Irish gangsters, basically, like Irish American gangsters. So yeah. I was hoping for something a little more exciting. All right, and then the one non-old people action movie is uh, Cinderella. Did you enjoy Cinderella? I enjoyed some of it. I Aww. think I think it was very pretty. It is but very pretty. I do think that. 
doing a very traditional Cinderella as a reminder that Cinderella is a terrible heroine. Oh, don't let my wife, who's in I the know, other room, hear I, what you're saying right now. I know it's she her might favorite. break through the door and beat like, you. Like, what is the moral of Cinderella? Is to be a doormat, and eventually, oh. a magical person will give you a pretty dress so oh. you can marry a rich guy you've met once. They met twice in this film. That's just, true. Just they for the record, they meet twice. And that first meeting is set up basically to make sure that you know that she doesn't want him just because he's a prince. Right. Cinderella, no, like, she likes never him for something him. like that. It's yes. not about money. I know. Why? She, it should have be about courage money. and be kind, Allison. What courage does she have? She has the courage to not blab when, there's a, when, when that is an option to her. She protects the prince. They turn the, his her doormatness, as you put it, into a strength in this movie. I thought I that was very. I feel like that is literally untrue. No, I and feel that like the, that is very much the true. The courage that she shows is going to a party that everyone is invited to. No, the, the part I'm talking about is after the party. When when, when the the I don't want to spoil it for people, but there is a scene where she it's it's almost like a like a uh, uh, the bl- Hollywood blacklist kind of thing where she could speak or she can remain silent and she chooses to remain I silent. I actually don't know what you're talking about. Well, we can about. talk about it off the air. I'm okay. not going, I'm not going to spoil it for the people who are listening. And I also resented that a lot of this movie was about the prince being like follow your heart. That's a terrible thing for a prince to do. <laughs> Literally, he's like to be like, "Well, I want to marry for love." And you're like, "You're a prince. Like your job is to marry for strategically to help the kingdom." I thought this was a very I've seen because my wife is the biggest Cinderella fan on the planet. I've seen every Cinderella that's ever been made. I thought this was a very good Cinderella. I really liked Kate Blanchett. She's great. Uh Stellan Skarsgård as good. the duke. The scene, so between delici- the, two of, the scene between the two of them oh, was my favorite one so in the movie. They're so deliciously evil. And I liked the prince. Prince Kit. He was fine. He's very handsome. His teeth were so white. His eyes are <laughs> the most beautiful shade of blue. Mm. He's not shirtless enough for my taste. He's in not terms shirtless of sh- at all. Well, right. He's not this Sean is Penn. This a Disney movie. He's not Sean Penn. It's a very chaste film. It's a Disney film. He said. I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed Cinderella more than I enjoyed Chappie, which I saw the same day vastly vastly enjoyed Ch- well, Chappie was horrible yeah yeah it was spectacularly bad yeah all right well that wasn't a very brief and concise <laughs> version of that segment but hey it's all free all right let's get into uh, behind the eight ball where we wrap our show up every episode with a rundown of three new titles on streaming two listener recommendations and one film chosen blindly by number from our my lists allison would you like to go first or would you like me to go first i'll go first very well. Why don't you begin with three new releases? Okay, first up, just added to Netflix is Force Majeure, Ruben Oslin's black comedy about a Swedish family on a ski vacation in the Alps when a an avalanche basically causes a huge rift in the family in how uh, b- based on how the father reacts or doesn't react appropriately. Uh, it's uh, just a bitterly funny movie about gender expectations and roles and about ski resorts and Austin makes great use of like still shots of people on on ski lifts and things uh awesome movie yes reminds me of the loneliest planet but it's Uh, funnier it's It's funnier and also less forgiving at the same time it's better so that is now streaming on netflix uh, streaming free on break.com is the Whoa. puffy chair. Oh. Yeah, which is the first feature from the Duplass brothers who are 
everywhere now. They are. Togetherness, their HBO series just wrapped. It was renewed. J. Duplass is on Transparent. Mark's been acting in other people's movies, both good and terrible. They've got stuff at South by yes, this week. They executive produced three movies at Sundance in January. <laughs> and they also just signed a deal to make four movies for with Netflix, Netflix, right? Yes. Yeah, so we'll be talking about them more. So this is their first film, uh, 2005, one of the formative films of the Mumblecore movement. Mm. Stars Mark and Mark's now wife, and the League co-star and filmmaker herself, Katie Asselton. And I think the thing that's neat to look at with this movie is just how much they've grown as filmmakers and how much their sensibility was there in those in that early movie anyway. And one more for novelty value, uh, streaming on Hulu. In 1999, Hallmark Entertainment produced a biblical-themed movie for NBC, uh, which is not some not unknown for, for a network to do. Bible things play well as we keep coming back around to every once in a while. Focus on Mary of Nazareth and her relationship and, imp- and her importance to her son, Jesus. It's directed by Kevin Connor, who might be best known for his horror comedy, Motel Hell, and starred Swedish actress Pernilla August as Mary. And in what I can only describe as a weirdly satisfying development, Jesus is played by a 25-year-old Christian Bale, who wow. would follow up the role with his one in American Psycho. <laughs> and I think, weirdly, this movie just reinforces Bale's strengths as an actor. You know, this is a fairly stilted, lower-budget biblical saga. He And he plays Jesus. He gets crucified. And getting low-budget crucified and making it look not just good, but also kind of moving and, you know, and not offensive. He rises above the material, yes, no pun intended. It's impressive i you know it was not it wasn't a particularly he acted throughout like you know since he's since he was a kid but uh this is really a reminder that even in material that you know wasn't the world's best he really stood out so if you want to check that out it's an interesting peek at this kind of quiet moment in his career Mary, Mother of Jesus, on Hulu. Wow, what a what a find by Allison there. All right, how about two listener recommendations? All right, we have one from Zach, uh, who is Swishel on Twitter, S-W-I-S-H-E-L. Zach writes, I wanted to recommend the documentary Women Aren't Funny, available on Netflix. It follows comedian Bonnie McFarlane as she goes on and off tour and enlists the help of other comedians, both male and female, to put to rest the notion that women aren't funny. It's a very honest and funny documentary and some great appearances by the likes of Joan Rivers, Sarah Silverman, and a new favorite comedian of mine, Chelsea Peretti. McFarlane keeps the cameras rolling throughout the ups and downs and isn't afraid to be vulnerable in front of the camera. Of course, the answer is women are funny, very funny, but the documentary isn't really about that. It's more about the daily struggle of not only being a stand-up comedian, but a female one who has to fight against a stupid stereotype. Um, so that is Now Streaming on Netflix. And then Jedediah from St. Louis recommends The Mule, the Aussie imports. Jedediah writes, the premise sounds like a broad comedy and it's funny, but not really broad. It's a well-constructed crime thriller with a lot of heart or at least guts. Uh, and qu- he sent us an excerpt from his blog, which is Hardboiled Wonderland, spaceythompson.blogspot.com. A first-time drug mule is stopped at customs in Melbourne, returning from Thailand, with 20 condoms full of dope in his guts. He refuses an x-ray, and the authorities have the latitude to hold him without charges for seven days. So now he's under house arrest in a hotel room, 24-7 police chaperone, and a shitload of willpower not to take a crap. 
unfortunately, his criminal teammates, some of whom are also his football teammates when he was in Bangkok, are plotting all over the place, not betting on their man inside or their man's insides. They're offing each other and making plans to off him to cover their asses should he evacuate his. It's got terrific turns from each cast member, including Hugo Weaving, Lee Whannell, Ewan Leslie, and John Noble. Uh, Australian crime flick exports are a better product than the domestic selection overall. And that one is available for rent. And that's quite a cast mm. <laughs> for a movie about someone Indeed. trying not to poop. Um, so thank you, Jedediah, for that. All right. And one film chosen blindly by number from your buy list. Uh, you gave me number 42. It is Boy Meets Girl. Uh, Leos Crax's first feature starring Denis Levant and Ray Perrier. A sullen filmmaker and a suicidal woman, both recently dumped, meet by chance over an apartment intercom connected by their mutual heartbreak. This one I added to my, my list, and it seems to keep just getting bumped down by new additions. But that is, that's on there. All right. All right, Matt, are you ready? Yes. Okay, three new releases. First on Amazon Prime is Listen Up, Philip, third feature film from Alex Ross Perry, who, full disclosure, was a co-worker of mine back when we both were employees at Kim's Video, the famous video store in New York City. Thankfully, Alex has turned into a very good filmmaker, so I don't have to pretend to like his movies whenever we bump into each other occasionally. Listen Up, Philip is his follow-up to the also very good Color Wheel and it's his first movie with big-name Hollywood actors. It stars Jason Schwartzman, El Elizabeth Moss, and Jonathan Price, among others. And it's a superb look at the New York City lit world. And it also is a very good look at egotistical, self-obsessed artists in general. There's a great sequence that's just about Elizabeth Moss's character, which is wonderful. It's a very good movie. Listen up, Philip, on Amazon Prime. Next on Hulu, Michael Moore's debut documentary from 1989, Roger and Me, about his quest to get an interview with Roger Smith, the then CEO of General Motors, and ask him about closing down many of the company's plants in Moore's hometown of Flint, Michigan, essentially dooming the area to economic devastation. I think Michael Moore's shtick eh, got a little stale, and increasingly it definitely got sour over time, but I've always loved Roger and Me. I never get tired of watching it. I've seen it many times, and for better or worse, Easily one of the most influential documentaries of all time. So certainly worth watching for that reason alone. That's Roger and Me on Hulu. And finally, something I also saw just added to Hulu that I've never heard of, haven't watched, but very interested to check out. It's called Eurocrime, with an exclamation point and then a subtitle, The Italian Cop and Gangster Films That Ruled the 70s. Here's the plot description from the IMDb. A documentary concerning the violent Italian polizio and my friend Alberto, who listens to the show, who's Italian, is going to have to let me know how terribly I slaughtered that word. Cinematic movement of the 1970s, which at first glance seemed to be ripoffs of American crime films like Dirty Harry or The Godfather, but really address Italian issues like the Sicilian Mafia and Red Terrorism. Perhaps even more interesting than the films themselves were the rushed methods of production, stars performing their own stunts, stealing shots, no live sound, and the bleed over between real-life crime and movie crime. And it's a genre I've seen a couple of examples of, but not a lot but very interested. I love docs like this that are about a subgenre that you don't really know that much, give you an overview, show you some movies that you should check out. So that's something I'm really looking forward to watching and expanding my knowledge about this little genre. It's called Eurocrime, the Italian cop and gangster films that ruled the 1970s. All right, two listener recommendations. Our first one here is from Jason Weaver, who's on Twitter, at JWeavKC, J-W-E-A-V-K-C. 
He says, hello, one quick streaming recommendation I would like to make, which can be found on Netflix, is the 30 for 30 from ESPN called Of Miracles and Men. It tells the story leading up to the 1980 Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, as well as the semifinal game against the USA, Miracle on Ice, from the perspective of the Soviet Union. And I actually just saw that this popped up on Netflix, and I added it to my, my, my list just a few days ago. So I'm looking forward to watching that myself. That's Of Miracles and Men, and thank you for that recommendation, Jason. And finally, I've got a recommendation here from Gil Fuster in Melbourne, Australia. Gil writes, Hi, Matt and Allison. After a lifetime, okay, okay, 10 years of being a Film Spotting Original Recipe fan, it's a real treat to get a second Film Spotting helping every fortnight with SVU. I enjoyed your discussion about predestination. That was our previous episode. Not the least of which because it's always a pleasure when my fellow Australians get put in the spotlight. In your discussion of the Spirig Brothers' work, though, you didn't mention their debut feature, Undead. Undead is a great low-budget horror flick, an absolute blast from start to finish, very reminiscent of early Peter Jackson gore fests in style and humor. It's fast, funny, and gruesome. It's also completely bonkers by the end and doesn't quite nail the finale, but the ride is worth it. Thanks for the great conversations, film recommendations, and spirited enthusiasm. That was a recommendation from Gil in Melbourne, Australia. Allison, have you seen Undead? I have not. I actually hadn't heard of it. So I had heard of it. I haven't watched it. So I guess that's why we, we didn't mention it. We should have at least mentioned, I suppose. We saw their previous film, uh, which was... Daybreakers. Daybreakers, thank you. Uh, Undead isn't currently streaming on Netflix, but it's on DVD. You and it's also it. available for rent, I believe. Right. I, I should add it to my... my uh, my DVD queue at the very least. I do want to watch it because I did the, the, these Spirit Brothers. They've got something. They've got something. So that's Undead recommended by Gil in Australia. Thank you, Gil. All right. And one from your my list. You gave me number 80. And this time that is the Oogie Loves in the Big Balloon Adventure. Somehow, Allison, I still have never watched the Oogie Loves. You know all about the Oogie Loves, don't you? I do not. You don't know what the Oogie Loves are? This terrible movie that came out a few years ago and was an attempt to make I, oh, I don't know what. It's yeah. like a children's film, but it got a very large release. I remember. Why do you want to watch it? Because I, I called myself the, one of the foremost movie masochists on the planet earlier. Oh, but there's like fun bad. And then there's just like bad Well, bad. it's not masochistic if it's fun. Mm. This is about hurting. Deep, deep hurting. Mm. It's the Oogie Loves in the Big Balloon Adventure. Would you like to hear the plot description? No. Are you sure? Yeah. They go on a big balloon adventure. That's um, insightful. Would it interest you to know the cast includes Carrie Elways, Christopher Lloyd, Jamie Presley, Cloris Leachman, and Chaz Palminteri? No. All right. I tried. <laughs> I will watch the Oogie Loves someday. I will get some, some bourbon or some scotch, a whiskey of some kind, and I will watch the Oogie Loves in the Big Balloon Adventure, and I will love it. I promise you I will love it. I believe you. Well, that brings us to our next listener's choice poll. Uh, Every episode, we offer you three options to vote on uh, for our main review in the next episode. And this time, we opted for some older films. It's been a while since we've talked about some older films. You know, we always like a chance to talk about some classics and maybe catch up sometimes with movies that we haven't seen yet. So we've got a few that we haven't seen yet. One you've seen. I've seen the first one, but the other two I have not seen. Yeah. So, so why don't we start with that one? All right. The one we uh, that I have seen that Allison has not seen is from 1975. It is streaming now on Netflix, and it is an 
excellent, excellent film titled Three Days of the Condor, directed by Sidney Pollack. I will read you the plot description. A bookish CIA researcher finds all his co-workers dead and must outwit those responsible until he figures out who he can really trust. Robert Redford plays the bookish CIA researcher. The cast also includes Faye Dunaway, Cliff Robertson, and Max von Sydow. It's an awesome cast. It's an awesome movie. It's one of the, the classic 70s paranoia thrillers which we could probably do as the subject, 70s paranoia thrillers or maybe paranoia thrillers in general from any era. It's an awesome film. I've seen it a bunch of times. I haven't seen it in a few years, but it hasn't been that long, but I'm always happy to have an excuse to rewatch Three Days of the Condor. It's a great film. So that's option one, Three Days of the Condor, available on Netflix. Option two is available on Hulu Plus, and it is Late Spring. This is a 1949 film from Yasujiro Ozu. Uh, this is a Criterion, it's a Criterion release on, on Hulu Plus. This is their description. One of the most powerful of Yasujiro Ozu's family portraits, Late Spring tells the story of a widowed father who feels compelled to marry off his beloved only daughter. Eminent Ozu players Chishu Ryu and Setsuka Ohara command this poignant tale of love and loss in post-war Japan, which remains as potent today as ever and a strong justification for its maker's inclusion in the pantheon of cinema's greatest directors. Uh, I've seen some Ozu, but this not this film, and I think it might be a good time to do Fathers and Daughters mm. as a theme. Or, you or know. do a deep dive on Ozu. Yes. It would be, be a very exciting episode. <laughs> I, I'm not I, I I'm not a big expert on Ozu. I've only seen a couple of his films. It's a guy it's a that's a filmmaker I need to see more of. And actually it's a blind spot of film spotting original recipes too. They just did their tenth anniversary show, I think just last week or the week before. So first of all, congratulations to Adam and Sam Seriously, and the whole team. Guys, Ten years of film spotting is incredible. And it's a it's a great achievement, just that alone. But their episode was all their top five in that episode was all about blind spots. And both Adam and Josh had late spring, I think, in their top 10. And I know that it wound up in their final list and that supposedly the final list, and you should go find the episode, listen to it. You can also find the lists on filmspotting.net. Late spring wound up in the final list, which I think means they're going to be talking about it. So we could steal their thunder and sneak in there and see it before them. But I, I, it's another one that, I really need to see of all their blind spots. That was one that was like, oh man, I really need to see late spring as well. I need to see more Ozu in general. So I think that would be fun. Uh, maybe fun's not the right word, but I would like to at least catch up with at least one Ozu movie. That would be great. Our third option is a Western, a classic Western, considered one of the greats of the of the genre that neither of us have seen. It's called Shane. It's directed by George Stevens and it is available on Netflix right now. And I'll read you the plot description from Netflix. Amid stunning vistas, this Oscar-winning Western from director George Stevens follows a reformed gunslinger whose determination to avoid a fight is tested when greedy cattle barons threaten the community of homesteaders he's joined. Alan Ladd, Gene Arthur, Jack Palance, and Ben Johnson all star in the film. And again, this is like one of the pillars, the pillars of the Western genre, a genre I love that I've seen most of the great films of, and this is one that I've never caught up with. I know it best because in The Negotiator, the classic 1998 Kevin Spacey, Samuel Jackson from The Negotiator, they, dis- they discuss the ending. So I know the ending. I won't spoil it for you. But uh, they discuss their, in- their varying interpretations of the ending of Shane. Perhaps that's why I've never watched it, is it? I had it spoiled by Kevin Spacey. Damn you, Kevin Spacey, for ruining Shane. But I really want to see this one as well. So this would be a great one, too. We can't go wrong with any of these movies. They're all good options. But that is option three, Shane, streaming now on Netflix.
All right. Well, so which of these classics should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Units? You decide. You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com. Or even easier, you can enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Uh, your vote must be received by Monday, March 23rd at noon. After that, we cut off the poll. You can still vote, but it, it doesn't count. And after that, we'll be announcing the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is at filmspottingsvu. And you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on next week's episode, which will be on Tuesday, March 31st. Film Spotting SVU is also where you can find our show archive as well as a list of direct links to all the movies and TV shows we discuss on the show. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the classic movie review you pick. But in the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer and follow the show at Film Spotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from you guys, the SVU listeners, and from Allison, who's constantly trolling these sites to add more recommendations. It's an excellent... I learn things from following our my own podcast's Twitter handle, so I encourage <laughs> you to do the same. Don't forget to send us feedback. Send us your streaming recommendations via email, svu at filmspottingsvu.com, and don't forget to leave us an iTunes review Give us five stars. Tell us how wonderful we are. We Not need affirmation. We need it, but more importantly, it helps the iTunes juice or the algorithms or the math stuff that I don't understand that helps us reach new listeners. So please do that. Thank you, everyone. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>